Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Graham Finlay uh, here for his regular spot on, on Tell Me Why. But before we talk about that, why do you have the Queen as your head of state? Speaking as the News Talk Canada correspondent yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, from the office there, <clears throat> it is it is one of those things where it's um, it's not actually that complicated. There are a whole bunch of monarchists who who really like like the Queen, and okay. she doesn't cost us a lot, right? I mean, if I was in Britain, I'd have a different view about this, right? Um, the Quebecois, who view us as having colonized, us English-speaking Canadians as having colonized them for mm. well over 250 years, um, are anti-Queen sort of on principle, probably for the same reasons Irish people don't want to be ruled by the Queen. Um, but that's about it, right? Uh, I mean, so... And what about really, French Canadians? Were they you not? Know, the French Canadians, no. The French Canadians, like, there was a sort of genuine movement to, to, to leave the Queen, and they'd say insulting things about the queen but they didn't really mean it because she seems like a nice lady and and all but you know when growing up there would be these discussions but they never really went anywhere and the larger question was whether quebec would remain in canada it wasn't the queen which was bugging them for the most part and uh, she was on the money and uh again she didn't cost as much she's kind of gives us nice opportunities like the Commonwealth Games, which is a sports event which we might actually win some medals in. Um, there are Commonwealth <laughs> scholarships, which Americans don't get access to, so so people who sound like me can maybe go to Oxford and, and, and not have to compete with those Americans. So, you know, I mean, there's really not a lot of downside. Um, now, when they come to visit us, it's, it's kind of expensive. Um, mm. And um, you get some sort of weird results. So I went to the Princess Margaret primary school, um, named after the most louche member of the royal family you can imagine. <laughs> you have like a gin bottle over the front door. <laughs> we should have been on our flag. Really, right? you know? and, and so I, if, if we'd known about Princess Margaret, uh, you know, and been taught that in primary school, I think we'd have been a little older and wiser as a result. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't really, we get all the pomp and circumstance. We get all the scholarships and the, and the games. And we don't really put out a lot else for it. We have a governor general, just like we used to have in Ireland, right, a mm. viceroy, who who takes the queen's place for for the most part, and is basically our sort of head of state. Um, mm. Yeah, but, except, he, but he doesn't have any power. Or does he have any power? Well, I mean, they do have big, pretty much the same powers the president has. In that, you know, if you want to prorogue parliament, the the governor general has to say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sign legislation and things like that, but they don't really have a lot of powers because the one time they tried to exercise them in Canadian history, it was a bit of a constitutional crisis, right. as it was indeed here when, you know, if the president ever defies the, the sort of government of the day, it tends to go badly. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, so it doesn't really cost Canada enough for them to want to do anything about it, really. Yeah. And it's great to join, like, small countries. I know we're the big, second biggest country in the world, but there aren't a lot of us, 37 million. Small countries like to join things, right? Yeah. So, um, so you know, just like Ireland has um, joined La Francophonie, yeah. right? Because, of course, we speak French here in yes. Ireland. And, um, <laughs> and, and Rwanda, you know, has switched to English and is, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if it's joined the Commonwealth or would think about it, right? Small and, and not very powerful countries like to join international organizations, both for the soft power and, depending on it, for the hard power as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are there are there any trading benefits actually for being members of the Commonwealth? There are really few benefits. the The trading benefits used to be much more pronounced. I mean, you know, we first got our, our to have our own foreign policy after, uh, during World War One, right? So Canada is even more recently sort of oh. a dominion than Ireland, and that was the plan for Ireland under Home Rule was that it become a dominion like Canada. But um, 
The trade benefits have mostly gone. There are some slightly fav more favorable immigration benefits, but even those have pretty much gone away. Yeah. To okay. England, right, not, not to, to anywhere yeah. else. So. Uh, and Texas says the monarchy <clears throat> of the British equivalent of the Kardashians. Not entirely inaccurate, actually, <laughs> in some respects. Anyway, uh, yeah. uh, Graham is here for Tell Me Why. Uh, today's question for Graham is, are we living through late-stage capitalism? Uh, uh, so I suppose start by telling us what is late-stage capitalism. Yeah, what does that mean? Late capitalism or late-stage capitalism is a, arguably a piece of wishful thinking on the part of orthodox Marxists who are like, at any moment now, capitalism's going to collapse and then you'll see we were right. Yeah. right. You know, <laughs> surely this crisis, right, whether it's like the latest boom and bust cycle crisis or a banking crisis or a, you know, a commodities crisis or a supply chain crisis, surely this is the time capitalism's inner contradictions will be revealed and... Either, right, the working class will be driven so mad by it that they'll rise up and overthrow it, or it'll just collapse of itself and we'll have to come up with something else. Mm, right. So that it was, a, it was a popular phrase in Europe, uh, in Germany especially, uh, as I'm not going to, uh, spätkapitalismus, uh, you know, for much of the 20th century. But it didn't really make a lot of inroads into um, English-speaking countries until the 1970s. When I think when people were experiencing a whole variety of crises, whether they were capitalist crises or crises of culture, political crises, legitimation crises, you saw late capitalism start to be mentioned in English translations of German and Belgian works, which which suggested that there's something, you know, happening here in the words of Buffalo Springfield. Uh, but what it is isn't exactly clear. And, you know, what Marxists argued was that capitalism, having gone from a sort of unfuttered capitalism uh, of the 18th century, say, to the monopoly capitalism of, of the 19th century up until the crisis of, of the Depression, right? You know, because capitalism, according to Marx uh, and lots of other people, has this tendency to monopoly. So the, the, the whole idea was that we'd have fewer and fewer capitalists owning more and more stuff. Mm. All of us would be driven down into the proletariat. Uh, we would experience our exploitation and we'd become aware of ourselves as proletarians and we would overthrow these few monopolists because there'd be very few of them yeah. uh, and a whole lot of us, right? Um, and that was, that was supposed to be the cycle. So with monopoly capitalism in the 19th century, and you think about these big firms, especially in the United States, which, which owned you know huge amounts of things, you know, really crucial things like steel and railroads mm. and things like that. You know, that that age, which was also characterized by the expansion of capitalism globally through colonization and through global markets for um, labor, but also for especially raw materials and things like that, the, the way that the bourgeoisie scour the earth, in the words of Marx, you know, in search of markets, but more important for for things they can consume and produce it for, for wealthier countries. You know, that was supposed to give rise to, a, a especially after the crisis of the Depression and World War II, to um, late-stage capitalism, where, you know, you sort of run out of places to scour for, mm. for um, goods. You Capital becomes hyper-global when we talk about globalization. Um, not globalism, that's something else. Globalization, mm. which, you know, has, has really integrated the world's markets. When we look at the global uh, flight of capital, the ability of capital to become really, really liquid, move around the world at terrific and terrifying speed, global labor markets, uh, and, and depending on, on your attitude towards this, you know, the replacement of, of, of the kinds of jobs which characterize the long boom after World War II, you know, with people who are either coming in or doing the job somewhere else, 
that was supposed to be the stage where capitalism stops working yeah. for everyone. Now, you might say it never did work for everyone, but the idea <laughs> was, right, there's growth, there's a, you know, an unleashing of the productive forces, if you like to talk that way. And that eventually everybody would be sort of better off. This is the self-justifying yes. version okay. of capitalism. And the idea was that, you know, and you can decide whether we're going through that now, right? All of this would um, stop working and people would see it for the fraud that it was, right? And that it wasn't doing what it uh, pretended to do. And, and you just couldn't ignore the downside of, of increasing precarity, of, uh, you know, less and less quality of life um all those secure jobs we see in the 50s and 60s going away decline every you know and the increasing control of the political system by 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 great big capitalists I, right so, interesting that because i mean uh, uh, any decade since world war Two, somebody was describing exactly what you described there including the decade we're in right now yeah I mean, and for some reason capitalism has that ability to adapt to these situations. And it is. It's incredibly resilient. And I think it was Gramsci who had a lot of time on his hands, you know, in an Italian prison, you know, to think about these things, like why has capitalism not collapsed? And he ta started talking about the hegemony um, and uh, of, of capitalist culture and of ideology, which is the way in which our material situation determines how we think about ourselves and how we think things should go. Um, and again, so I, I suppose late capitalism in some people's minds is as much a, an ideological failure uh, as, as anything else. But again, Gramsci paid attention to the way in which culture and, and capitalism's ability to sort of continue to get us to consume culture and, and to see ourselves, you know, as fans of particular football teams, right, or whatever, um, as the way in which capitalism keeps replicating itself and keeps staving off the, the inevitable revolution. And I think there's something to that in the most recent uses of, of late capitalism. I mean, a lot of us have focused on the crises. And again, I think if you ask young people, a lot of them would say capitalism isn't really working for me anymore. And that's why in the United States, of all places, mm -hmm. socialism is no longer a dirty word yes, indeed. for yeah. under 40s or yeah. under 30s. All right. And, and we can discuss what's going on here um, if we if we like. But Frederick Jameson, who actually gets uh, attacked a lot on Twitter, uh, probably for stuff he didn't say. Tell people who Frederick Jameson is. He's a, 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 an American literary theorist, but he introduced a certain kind of understanding of, of late capitalism into the discourse back in the 80s, which mm. I was sort of there for because I'm old. But um, you know, which he, he had a book called Postmodernism and the Structure of uh, and the Logic of Late Capitalism, which tries to delve deeper into this cultural movement of capitalism, the, the cultural weapons capitalism has to preserve itself, which is this sort of degeneration of our culture into everything can be commodified, everything's about consumption, turning us into purely consumers, commodifying even us, although that is sort of a, a, a radicalism, which I don't think he envisaged in the 1980s and early yes, 90s, indeed, right? Yes. You know, through social media and through big data and through all the things you are all too familiar with, you know, he saw this this tendency for capitalism to turn everything into crap, right? Mm. Which is to be hastily consumed where there's no high culture, there's no low culture, there's just little bitty culture hits yeah. which have gotten speedier and speedier, right, with social media. You get your one minute, oh, I, I really hate that guy, yeah. right? You know, or I really like that meme, right, kind of thing. I mean, that's the reduction of everything to like really crass little hits which distract us from the fact that that our jobs are going away, yeah. right? And, and, and you know, I think that's what's interesting because, as always, I put late capitalism into Twitter and 
that seems to be what people are doing. They're making little jokes about how stupid and absurd so many of the practices of, of online consumption and, and, and marketing is, right? Yeah, but that doesn't do anything to undermine capitalism really Indeed, at all. You're, you're, you're doing it on Twitter and you're, you're making fun of products which just got some free advertising, right? Yeah, uh, yeah as uh, Liam says, capitalism did fall in 2008 but was bailed out by several governments including the US. That's essentially socialism but you'll never hear them admit it. Yeah, with socialism for big companies, right? And so it's your what happened in 2008 and it happened in many, many places is that uh, we socialized all the risk. We socialized the costs of private failures. Um, and a lot of people do point out that and these are people who think capitalism is still going to collapse because eventually the capitalists will run out of money. They can steal from governments. But the idea was that these corporations like the big banks were were cannibalizing government Right. Mm. Uh, to, to bail themselves out and that the transfers from government to these big banks, to these big corporations, to General Motors and things like that, you know, eventually are going to run out uh, because you're not going to. I mean, and then the idea, of, I think, is sort of the finitude of, of the real world. I think a lot of what um, makes people think that capitalism just can't go on like this is the commodifying of things which don't even exist. Right. The, the selling of products which don't physically exist, the turning everything into a futures market um, and in derivatives on derivatives Those and all fungible these fungible token, yeah, yeah, non fungible tokens, yeah. you know, all of these um, multi layer um, financial instruments which destroyed the world mm. in financial world in 2008, you know, eventually the real world of stuff and people's labor and actual real economy wealth is going to be exhausted as we continue to feed these beasts, right? And then we're going to have a proper economic crisis. We're going to have to organize our societies differently. Yeah, right? but you've just said that, but people have been saying that for, you know, yeah, I most mean, of the 20th think century. Think about how ideology works, right? I teach Marx in class, you know, that's part of my job. And it's become a lot easier since 2008, <laughs> you know? It's like, who got bailed out, right? And, and when we think about ideology, you can say, well, when we were told there is no other option but austerity, Right, which is mm. the response to all of the past crises, yeah. right? Um, that's ideology at work, some people would say. You know, that's you cannot imagine a world without capitalism, and so you have to do this. Right? Yes. It means slashing social spending and all sorts of stuff like that. And, I mean, one of the things which I think might cause the collapse of capitalism, I don't really want it to happen, right, is uh, some kind of hard climate disaster, right, or a buildup of successive environmental things, which also are really hard to fudge, right, in mm. terms of the balance sheet, um, which causes some kind of societal, economic, serious consequences, which will, will prevent us from carrying on the way we are. Um, now, what will probably happen is we'll carry on the way we are, and lots of other people will not. Uh, so, as you say, capitalism never seems to go away whenever these shocks occur and and it, you wonder that whether the actual um, cultural logic of it right now and are even bandying about ideas of late capitalism are actually just many one of the many ways in which we don't get our, off our asses and do something. Uh, capitalism, says one text, depends on a continually expanding stream of resources and remember you're only a capitalist if you own a factory or similar. It's only the 1% that are capitalists. We must dismantle capitalism or destroy ourselves and our ecosystem. Capitalism much, must end. It's a green issue, uh, says the text. But it, but it strikes me that that ability for capitalism to uh, to adapt to changing situations. And, and you know, there is the 1% who basically own, own the money. But then culturally, it, it, further down, there's a whole ecosystem of entrepreneurship. And, you know, you own a you own a coffee shop and you're just making like you're not making lots of money. But but like 
you have this golden aura about you because you're an entrepreneur and that somehow makes people feel that capitalism is working for them, even though they might be working all the hours God sends and not making a fortune out of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Marx did have the view. It's great that the, the texter said that, that capital really involves owning the means of production, right? So so if you don't own your shop, if you don't own the cups which you're selling mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you're you know, you're part of the petty bourgeoisie, right? Um, which is made up of all the lackeys who service capitalism, like lawyers and, and bankers and stuff like bank officials, not actual owners of banks, but but also all the people who, you know, have are moderately well off under capitalism and accordingly su- support it because they're doing okay. Although, as you say, it's people who have their own businesses work a lot. You know, they those people have some capital in that they clearly own some things, right? Mm. And I don't think Marx. I think Marx's story about how those people would would eventually be replaced by larger and larger multinational corporations has some truth in it, right? Yeah. But um, you know, is not quite as inexorable as we've seen. So there is Starbucks, right? Um, and but there are also lots of. In fact, one of, there are more of them, as far as I can tell, after the pandemic, you have more local coffee shops, where, yes. you know, which are not Starbucks, right? So, so it's obviously more complicated than this inexorable drive to larger and larger companies. Even as we see companies buy up every part of our cultural bandwidth and every part of our physical bandwidth as well. Um, I think one of the the greatest lines about this, also from Jameson, misquoting somebody else, uh, and happily, some people attribute it to Zizek, because I hate Zizek and would never quote him. I'm really delighted it's from Jameson, right? It's just like, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, right? And so we can imagine a climate disaster (laughs) which has us all like living in caves. But we can't. We imagine somehow that we're still going to, you know, look up to people. We're still going to have shares, right? And yeah. and and uh, factories and and money used in this particular sense for a mortgage on our cave or something like. That. On behalf of all the people who are shouting at the radios or are just about to send up uh, uh, send in long emails, is is there a viable alternative? That's a great question. A lot of people imagine a viable, alter- more viable alternatives where people get together on the basis of working. Right. Uh, And whether this is these are utopian communities or whether this is reorganizing our society so that we democratize money, we democratize finance. Um, And and this has to be obviously a global thing unless those democratizing countries can outcompete the countries which still have capitalism red in tooth and claw. But lots and lots of people are thinking all the time about ways of doing things differently. Zero growth uh, Mm. forms of economics and, and so forth. So there's I mean. What we, we should think big and we should imagine big and not let capitalism tell us not to do that. Uh, going back to what we were talking about at the start, uh, Eddie, who's listening to us in Montreal, says, mm-hmm. you said he, when asking questions about the Governor-General, don't want yeah. to be one of those people, but I guess I am. The Governor-General is especially important at the moment because Mary Simon is the first Indigenous person to hold the office, uh, says Eddie, who also adds he can't see Quebec leaving Canada anytime soon. I stand corrected. Yeah, though the last few Governor-Generals have been women. I should, right. I should have, have, have noted that. Yeah. So Just, thanks, Eddie. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Eddie. I've missed Quebec, so I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, okay. Uh, Graham, pleasure as always. Thanks a minute for coming into us. Graham Finley. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.